Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Yeah, fall's definitely upon us. Lots of opportunities to be involved in things. You know, one of one of my jobs in the fall uh, when we're kind of rolling into things and, and getting things going is is trying to have conversations with people where I'm... I'm encouraging them to maybe get involved or to get plugged in or, or to try this or try that or volunteer for this or volunteer for that. And uh, as I've had these conversations sort of over the last season of, of ministry, uh, something that I hear a lot of is, wow, I, I already say yes to so many things. Uh, my plate is really full. I feel stretched really, really thin. I'm, I'm pretty tired. It's interesting you would ask me to do that. I was actually thinking about quitting everything, uh, things like that. And, and, and kind of this theme of, I don't, I don't know how much longer I can keep it up. My burdens feel very, very heavy. Uh, so, you know, being a pastor and, and someone who oftentimes all I have to combat that stuff is the word of God, right? The word of the Lord. And so I think of verses like Jesus saying, and I think in Matthew 12, you know, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon your shoulders, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because I am gentle and humble in heart. And if you'll come to me, you'll find rest for your souls. And I think, I'll just read that to them. And then they'll all feel better about it. And they'll sign up for stuff, right? It's just that, it's that easy. I mean, doesn't that make you feel good? <laughs> I do wonder sometimes, we read scripture and it says, this will be your experience following me. And then you try to do, you know, what you can to walk with the Lord. And you feel like, this does not feel like my experience. Uh, following Jesus doesn't feel like the easy and light life all the time. And, and I, I maybe feel tired or I feel overwhelmed or I feel overcommitted. And so then I'm reading these verses and all these verses are doing is, undermining my feelings about, you know, my, uh, it's an inner subjective experience, but it's undeniable, right? Like this is the reality I have to live in, how I feel. And now the Bible verses are just undermining my feelings on this matter. If I wanted that kind of thing, I just have a conversation with my spouse, right? They do really good at undermining my feelings all the time. Anyhow, not my spouse. I would be the spouse who undermines feelings in that scenario. Anyhow, um, this is where, I'm, we didn't, did we forget to press start on the live stream? We didn't? Shoot. I'm going to delete that. Uh, this is where I think we begin to understand the difference between uh, reading scripture and saying, I, I read it, so I believe it, and that's enough, versus coming to scripture, somehow embracing in our hearts that there's truth that God wants us to experience, like lived experience truth that he wants us to have and, and to begin to understand and grow in each and every day. In many ways, this is the difference between a, an empty religion that's full of the rituals and the things that we do to try to feel a certain way versus the, the life of faith, of walking and living in Christ and, and with God 
Um, empty religion is something that's going to constantly undermine your, your feelings with these platitudes or these catchphrases or another list of things to do. And faith is this thing that invites you to come with everything that you are, all that you are, into a relationship with the one who says things like, you will find rest for your soul if you'll come to me. You know, we can go through seasons where it, it feels very easy to come to Jesus. Maybe you've gone through a season where you, it felt like the minute that you stepped into the church or the minute that you set aside time to spend uh, to spend time reading your Bible or praying or in the presence of God, you felt a connection to this infinitely good and wonderful creator. And then maybe you've gone through other seasons of life where you, you feel as if, I mean, if heaven's up there and I'm down here, it feels like there's you know, a concrete barrier between me and the one who proclaims to love me more than life itself. I think at times it can be easy to live as if our faith is more about being right and doing the right things than it is about living in a relationship with the one who created us. And this can be really hard for me to talk about with people because what we're stumbling into here is, is something I would call relational truth. It's a relational truth. It's something that you experience as true in the context of a relationship. It's not something that you can lecture on and then give a quiz and people can pass the quiz and then have a good life. Like that's not how it works. I'm actually a pretty good test taker. And so uh, disappointing fact, like there's no multiple choice test at the pearly gates and that's how you get in. You knew which verse said what about this or that. That's not what this is about. God has invited humanity into a relationship and it's something that we live out each and every day. It's hard to talk about a relational truth. It's especially hard to talk about it for people who have not experienced a lot of healthy relationships in their life. Try convincing a parent whose child maybe feels a deep sense of, of, of relational deficit, a lack of connection. Try convincing that parent that their duties as a parent go beyond just providing that child with, with a, a home to live in, a roof over their head, and food for their belly, and, and opportunities, right? You maybe hear pushback of things like, well, my dad worked 40 years at a job he hated. He just came home, he worked on the car, he watched TV, and that was good enough for me, so I don't know why my kid's so upset. Try convincing uh, a host who's so preoccupied with everything in the home being perfect, everything about the meal being perfect, so preoccupied with that, they're spending zero time talking or connecting with their guests, try to convince them that it's more important in this moment that the, that the people who came over for this meal were more excited about spending time with you than they were about eating food or sitting in a clean seat. If we've suffered our own relational deficits, if we've had a lack of healthy relationships, and most of us who have, you know, grown up and living all of our life in a fallen and a broken world, they're suffering deficits in one way or another, if we suffer those kinds of deficits, we can really struggle with relational truth. We can really struggle with these things. I do wonder if we wouldn't feel that our burdens were lighter, I wonder what it would, what it would be like. I wonder what our experiences would be like as followers of Jesus if we really felt connected to the one who promises us light burdens. I wonder how differently our daily experience going through life would be 
if we saw ourselves as doing this whole thing with God, living our life with Him, with Him present in our lives, not living each day trying to please Him or living each day under the rules that He's given us or living each day trying to do the things that we think we can do to make sure that He does His part, but living it with Him in a relationship. You've heard the phrase, misery loves company, and, and I think that phrase was invented to mean that miserable people like to make other people miserable. Um, but I've also found it to be true in the sense that even when things are really awful, if you've got people around you, it gets a little bit better. Perfect example, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were doing outdoor church and baptism up at the Murray's house, and, uh, and the weather didn't cooperate. And it was, it, it started raining about 15 minutes before church was supposed to start. And then it stopped raining about 15 minutes after church ended. Figure that out. Anyhow, imagine how that experience would have been if it had just been myself and Tyler and Danny who were there setting up the sound equipment. And then like, geez, we better get a tent over these electronics. Or, you know, Susie there with a big batch of cold brew coffee and no one else to drink it but her. Or Mike there all by himself. Uh, doing whatever Mike does when we do outdoor church at his house. Um, imagine how sad and pitiful that would have been. We'd have been miserable. But it was like, and Tyler called it. He's he, he's among the prophets. He said, this is going to be the best turnout we've ever had for outdoor church, and it's pouring down rain. And, and it was. Like, you guys showed up for a rainy Sunday morning together, and we cut church short. And we baptized people, and, and yeah, there was a lot of cold and wet happening, but man, I just, I smile every time I think about it. It was great. Misery loves company. The presence of our faith community with us for a rainy Sunday morning transformed our experience. What kind of a difference would the increased presence of the living God in your daily life make for you? What would it be like if you just felt like I can't get away from him. Wherever I go, he's there. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, he's in the middle of it. What would that be like? Let's pray. Father, we believe we were created to walk with you and to know you. To experience what it means where the psalmist says our creator delights in us with songs of joy. Father God, we are living for moments where that isn't just words on a page that we read one day. Where that isn't just hopes and dreams for a future someday in your presence. But that's something that we have lived and experienced in our lives here on earth. Holy Spirit, would you guide us today as we look at your word. And would you be drawing us into that reality together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we wrapped up a series on the book of Acts this last summer. Um, a lot of it was about Paul's missionary journeys. He's traveling all around the eastern Mediterranean region, planting churches, proclaiming the gospel. And, uh, and, and everywhere, he's leaving behind him communities of Jesus followers who are then doing their best to follow Jesus. And, and it's, it's probably safe to say that none of these communities that he left behind were more near and dear to his heart than the church that was in Ephesus. He started this church in Ephesus uh, and at the beginning of his third missionary journey. He actually ended up spending a couple, almost three years there with them, getting the church going, and then he took off and, uh, and he traveled around some more of that region. 
And, and then he's closing out his third missionary journey. Paul has this, this premonition that he's going back to Jerusalem, and he, and he kind of knows that he's, he's going to end up arrested. He believes he's, he's never going to be a free man again. And so he ends up uh, hailing some of the elders from the church in Ephesus to meet him in, in a nearby city. And he sits there with him, and he tells him, I think this is the last time I'm ever going to see you guys. And the, the author of Acts, his name was Luke, he records this emotional meeting that these guys have together, weeping together and, and just mournful because they realize this might, this might be the last time any of us ever see each other. Paul ends up uh, moving on. He, he does get arrested. Uh, he ends up sending Timothy, one of his favorites, off to pastor in this church. And then he catches wind uh, some years later uh, that there's trouble in the church. There's, there's bad teaching happening. There's people who are, are just kind of lost their way. And he writes uh, the letter that we call Ephesians to this church, trying to help them get back on track. Um, he starts the letter talking about his affection for them, and he's weaving into those statements all of this sound doctrine. Um, he praises God for what God has done. He, he talks about how these Ephesians are no longer dead in their sin, but they're alive in Christ. He reminds them that as, as Gentiles, as non-Jewish people, that at one time they were far away from God, but now they've been grafted into the family of God. They've become, uh, they were strangers and foreigners. They're now fellow heirs in the kingdom of God. They're now right in the middle of God's family. And he says it's all because of this wonderful plan that God has in Christ to, to include humanity. In, in the wonderful fellowship of God. Then in chapter 3, he writes this prayer for them. And this is a prayer that I've been uh, praying and meditating on for several months now uh, in, in planning our fall series. Um, and, and we're going to read this prayer today. And uh, I made a promise to myself about reading this prayer. And, and you guys can hold me to it. I'm not going to read something and then say something like, isn't that incredible? Or can you believe he just said that? Because I, because I've done that before, and it always falls flat. You know, you realize the more you you read scripture that that there's things that just stand out to you because you've been immersed in it and and you've been reading it. And so, you know, there's phrases in this prayer that I mean, they just they give me goosebumps, right? Because I'm I'm really holding on to this, embracing it. I would hope that there's passages of scripture that you've been hanging out in that would do the same for you. And me saying, isn't that incredible, is about the same as you saying, isn't that incredible? And we both look at each other like, uh-huh, yeah, that's really great. Uh, so I'm not going to say, isn't that incredible? But my hope is that uh, maybe in this next season of church life together, moving into the fall, that, that we would all find ourselves in Ephesians 3. We would all find ourselves, you could read the whole letter. I mean, I started reading the, the, the letter again from the beginning, because I've been hanging out in Ephesians 3, and I'm like, Oh, chapter one's so good. Maybe I'll just read chapter one on Sunday too. Oh, chapter two's so good. Maybe I'll just read chapter two on Sunday, but I won't do that because that would be terrible uh, for all of you. Um, anyhow, we're going to start reading in chapter three. My hope is that we would, we would all begin to immerse ourselves. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all came to church in a few weeks and we're like, did you read that in Ephesians chapter three? And I would say something like, isn't that so wonderful? And you would all be like, yes, it's life changing. I can't believe it's just written there in the Bible. I never noticed it before. Anyhow, uh, we'll start uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes, For this reason, in light of everything he's said, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth 
derives its name. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> I, started, I started here. It's, it's the intro to the prayer, right? But Paul's painting a picture. I'm kneeling before the Father from whom every family on earth derives its name. The original Greek says something maybe a little bit more like every family's named, from whom every family is named. I don't know exactly what Paul means by that, but I've been trying to enter that reality in my own prayer life. You know, I, I woke up pretty early this morning. I was a little anxious about how the service is going to go and, and things that you can imagine would normally be on your heart if you feel some degree of responsibility for Sunday mornings. And I'm, I'm trying to just calm myself. I haven't even gotten out of bed yet. I'm trying to calm myself and just imagine kneeling before the one from whom every person who has ever lived, is living now, and will ever live has, has, has derived their name. I've had the privilege of, of naming three people in my life. And, and to me, the father who has, has named every person, like I can connect to that as a father myself and as someone who at least had some input on some names. Um, it's maybe an oversell saying I named them. I did that. I named them. Well, I said, yes, honey, those sound like great names. Um, but you feel this connection to this person where, uh, I mean, I remember being surprised at how, uh, how wonderful I thought everything they did was, you know, they're a little kid and you're like, oh my gosh, they're moving their hands. Isn't that incredible? And, you're like, and it's like this with little babies, right? You can get so excited and attached to them doing the most inconsequential or even foolish things. I mean, it's, it was adorable at times, the, the risks they would take and the ways that they would. Uh, you would try to tell them that's not going to work out well for you, and they would just do it anyways. And you're like, oh, they're so adorable. Their dog had a determination to tip that chair over. <laughs> I can't believe it. Anyhow, imagining that's the father that I'm praying to, someone who has named me, someone who looks at me with that adoration in his eyes and, and thinks of me that way. And I'm waking up this morning, and he's probably thinking, James, if you had any idea how little of Sunday morning is depending on you, you wouldn't be worried about it at all. I've got it all covered. These are my people that I love and care for. I'm pretty determined for them to have a good time at church today, much more than you are. And I'd just be able to settle into that. So we'll settle in this. Paul's settling into this reality. This is the Father he's kneeling before. And then this is his prayer. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, and according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What a prayer. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> I want to point out a couple of things. Okay, what, what is Paul specifically praying for? There's a catchphrase that comes up three times. What's he praying for? Starts with a P and rhymes with our. Power, right? He's praying for power. 
You know, I, I have, uh, all my life, I've wanted to be stronger. Um, it, I mean, I would be, it's far more likely I'd be mistaken for a scarecrow than a bodybuilder. Um, and I, and I've, I've wanted strength because strength is admired in our society, right? Power is a, a good thing. Power is something that we should long for, especially when you can have power over the things around you. You can start to control things, and you can, you can start to influence people, and, and you can get a bigger slice of the pie that's out there. Power's great. Yes, Paul, pray for me to have power. If Paul's listening today from somewhere on the other side, Paul, pray for me to have power. But in this prayer, he says, power for what? He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ may dwell in your hearts. This is language that's meant to describe uh, uh, a connection in the core of who you are with Christ. Him, Him dwelling, Him taking up residence inside, in your heart. You know, I tend to associate power with being able to do to do hard things, right? Like lifting heavy weights or, or being able to carry something all by myself. Um, but the power that Paul's talking about, it, it's a little different in this prayer. It has a different application. He says that you may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Talk about doing hard things, things that are, are beyond my weakness. And I think I'm realizing more the older I get how weak my grasp is on how wide and, and sorry, wide and long and high and deep God's love for me is. I just imagine that if I had a more firm grasp on that, if Paul's prayer for the Ephesians was answered in my life, that God gave me power to grasp his love, to begin to grasp the immense size of it. I just have to imagine that every every vice that's in me, every frustration that I have with the people who are around me, every sinful desire that resides in my heart, every insecurity that plagues my mind, these things would just melt away in the face of this incredible, remarkable love from the creator of all the universe. I mean, we're talking about the love that created the world while it was mindful of me. We're talking about the kind of love that compelled Christ to suffer on the cross. The love that knows me completely, knows everything about me, and delights in me all the same. This is a different kind of power that would empower me to grasp that kind of a thing with my mind. This is not the kind of power that men usually pursue. This is, this is a holy kind of power. It's not like the other things. That Christ would dwell in your hearts and that you would grasp how wide and long and high and deep his love is for you. I, I'm really hoping that this next season of church life that we have together would be a season of, of stepping into that kind of of power, seeking that kind of revelation from God, to grow in our knowledge of his love, and, 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 and trusting that Jesus can 
can take up residence in our heart and somehow bring us to that place that His Holy Spirit can empower us in that way, to places that would go beyond anything we could ever imagine. So we've, we've got a bit of a strategic plan to try to move there together. We've got a, a half a dozen of our church friends have, have been writing and putting together what's going to be a, a daily uh, devotional writing. It'll have a, a notebook form as well as an audio form. Uh, something to try to encourage you to set time aside every day for 40 days to reflect on God's presence in your life, to read some of Scripture, and uh, and then there'll be kind of reflection questions written into that. And it's really my hope that every every one of you who's old enough to read, includes the kids upstairs, everyone who's old enough to read maybe be like, yeah, I think I'm going to try that. I'm going to try digging into that. I know you've got a lot on your plate. I know you've already overcommitted yourselves to things. I know you already said yes to a lot of things. My hope is that when we launch this on October 15th, you'll say yes to that as well. Because we have a, a conviction that that uh, we want to do this thing together, we really value the togetherness of church life, we're, we're going to pair that daily devotional with, with some six-week sort of small group sessions. And so my hope is that if you will do that in your individual life on your, on, on your own time and as a daily habit, that you'll make a weekly habit of having a spiritual conversation with another person in the church. We'll have a couple of times offered uh, at various different times throughout the week. But then if none of that works for you, maybe you'll just find one other person. Maybe somebody you share a house with or maybe you, somebody you work with who you're like, let's do this together. Let's catch up every week, talk about what God's been speaking to us in our devotional time. And, and the other part of that is going to be taking time to pray for one another. Praying the kinds of prayers that Paul prays over the Ephesians, that God would just continue to move us closer to him. And of course, we're going to tie everything on our, our Sunday mornings into this effort as well. So it's going to start on October 15th. I'm giving you almost a whole month to think about this, to stew on it, to weigh in your mind. What are the results? Is it worth the investment? What are we hoping to achieve? I want to tell you now, it's a relational goal. So it's going to be tough probably to measure in concrete ways what it's going to look like. But we are pursuing the greatest thing you could ever pursue. Uh, Mackenzie and I have been uh, taking uh, classes, uh, theology classes together for the last over a year, about a year, I don't know, about a year. And so we do our homework and then we meet together every couple times a month to talk about it. And we're just learning. And so we're, we're taking a class off the Bible Project's website called Adam to Noah. It's a look at the chapters in Genesis from Adam to Noah. Um, aptly named, of course. <laughs> and there was this lesson that, that we talked about that we'd done, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago. But it was on uh, Genesis 5, the genealogies in Genesis 5, right? And you guys are like, genealogy is so cool. Tell us all about it, James. Uh, genealogies are the lists of names in the Bible. So-and-so begat so-and-so, had another kid, had another kid. It's thrilling. <laughs> Anyhow, one of the things that I learned in the class was, uh, so uh, this thing happened in the 19th, 20th century. Uh, people started digging up. Archaeology became a thing. and People started digging up all this stuff from ancient civilizations. And, uh, and archaeologists found all of these other Near Eastern accounts, ancient accounts of the creation of the world and a flood narrative and, and things like this. And, and they're like, oh, isn't it so curious that these things exist 
alongside the Hebrew scriptures that we've been familiar with forever because they are much more meticulously preserved than these other things. And, and, and some would say, well, look, it sounds like the Israelites just borrow the story of the flood from these other guys, or it sounds like this thing happened. But the curious thing is that so many of these ancient accounts, they have genealogies too. They have genealogies in them, and, uh, which just tells you that uh, genres and popular appeal and writing changes quite a bit because I don't think anything is written with a genealogy in it now. At least not anything that anyone would read, right? I mean, if you want to for sure, no one's going to buy your book, write a genealogy. Or if you want to bore your relatives at a family gathering, talk about your genealogy. Um, anyhow, this stand is not working out well. So, uh, so, so many of these have, uh, and this is the eerie part, they have a story, uh, and the story is about essentially uh, where humanity came from and then how the city of Babylon got to be. Major city in the ancient Near East, so all the stories kind of revolve around how did Babylon get to get there. And, uh, and, and most of these genealogies have ten generations from Adam to the flood as well. And most of these these genealogies have seven generations from Adam to the creation of Babylon. Uh, in, in most of them, they, they talk about uh, this great man who founded the city of Babylon. Um, this is a man who is the seventh generation, again, from Adam. Uh, this person would have been an archetype of what all of humanity should aspire to be. Uh, this is someone who was maybe graced by the gods. In some cases, he's invited up into the heavenly council of all the gods usually comes back as a great successful society builder and the sharer of secrets, maybe a little metallurgy or a little medicine for you, all from the gods. And, of course, this is the case in the biblical account as well. Seventh person from Adam on, on Cain's side is uh, this man named Lamech. He's the one who, who uh, builds uh, Babylon. He's a powerful figure in the Old Testament, kind of is, is thought of by many scholars to be responsible for the whole Tower of Babel incident. You know, we don't talk about the Tower of Babel incident. Um, he's the seventh from Adam on that side, but on Cain's side. But then on Adam's other son, Seth, on Seth's side, there's another genealogy. And the seventh from Adam on Seth's side is a man named Enoch. Enoch lived for 365 years. He was faithful to God. And Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. And while it might be a little unnerving for some to consider that there's other ancient Near Eastern accounts of generations from the first man to the flood and things like that, the Hebrew account always stands apart because woven into it are, are these like stories, almost commentaries on all the other accounts. So it's responses to their view of the world and their view of the Creator. In the Hebrew account, in this story in particular, Enoch stands apart as the idealized man. Who's the greatest man in the Hebrews' mind in history? Is it someone who builds cities? Is it someone who shares the secrets of the gods? Is it someone who has power to rule over his fellow man? No, not at all. In the Hebrew account, Enoch's story demonstrates, in the face of all these other narratives, he demonstrates that the greatest thing that you can do is to walk humbly with your God. This is our goal. This is what we're pursuing together. Not the kind of power that builds societies, but the kind of power that enables us 
to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is God's love for us. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to be people who walk more closely with you. We want to be people who are able to grasp firmly onto these truths of who you are. We just confess today our hands are weak, our minds are shadowed, and we have no idea how great you are, how incredible you are. Our imagination is so limited, and we are so burdened with things that, that probably aren't even, aren't even getting close to the bullseye. And so, Holy Spirit, would you reveal yourself to us? Teach us who you are in this next season as we just endeavor to walk more closely with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.